You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Lord, we come before you right now, God, to proclaim your incredible greatness, Lord. You are holy, you are high and lifted up, you are exalted, Lord, you are majestic, you are pure, and God, there is no one like you in heaven or on earth. And God, we come this morning to lift your name and to give you the glory, Lord. We bow before you right now, Lord, in our hearts, just to proclaim your greatness and your worth, Lord, and to say, God, we love you. And Lord, we come asking this morning that you would lead us in this time in your word, Lord. Lord, would you continue our worship by teaching us, Lord, the things that you have spoken to us and how they apply to our lives. And Lord, would you open our eyes to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, more clearly than we do right now at this moment. Lord, would he be exalted in this time. Lord, lead us, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory and for the building up of his church. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat this morning. Well, good morning, Harvest Niagara. It is, uh, it is a joy to be able to lead you in God's Word today. And uh, for those of you that I don't know, my name is Brett Patterson, and I am uh, one of the pastors on staff here at Harvest Niagara. And, uh, and uh, this week, uh, Pastor Daryl is away uh, preaching in Buffalo, and so I have the joy of filling in and continuing on in our courageous series in 2 Timothy. And so I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, right now, that's in the New Testament, uh, a little better than halfway through, okay? And if you don't have a Bible with you, just go ahead and put up your hand and keep it up, and we would be glad to get a copy of God's Word in your hands. I think ushers are going to come down the aisles. Here they come. There we go. Okay. So just hold your hand up. If you don't have a copy, you'll want to follow along with us this morning. And so we are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, going to carry on from where we were last week, uh, verses 14 through 19 today. And as we're turning there and as we're getting ready, I just want, to, I just want us to think about um, faithfulness for a moment and just consider this theme, really the text that's in front of us is really all about faithfulness in so many ways. And you know, we talk a lot about faithfulness in the church, we hear a lot about faithfulness in the church. Um, but do we really ever stop to really consider what is faithfulness? What does it really mean to be faithful? What is the foundation for our faithfulness? You know, we live today in a culture that is uh, saturated by unfaithfulness. And uh, many of us, or some of us in this room, have felt the effects of that heavily in our own life. I mean, we see today that, you know, adultery is rampant, um, unfaithfulness is happening all over the place. Our political leaders are often unfaithful to their calling to office and unfaithful on the things that they have promised while they were on the campaign trail. Um, so we see unfaithfulness all over those areas, but we also see, you know, unfaithfulness in media advertisements, right? Um, we see, you know, that, that car go past on our television and we're like, oh, if I just had that, my life would be so much better, like their life is better. And then uh, we get the car and what do we realize? We realize our life really isn't much better, but we're just more in debt, right? Okay, and, but, but we bought into the lie. We bought into the unfaithfulness of marketing, which does not promote the truth. And so we're bombarded every single day with messages of unfaithfulness. And this is not even to mention our own, the, the unfaithfulness of our own hearts, our own unfaithfulness to the Lord who has bought us with his precious blood, and yet, you know, in our own hearts and lives, we often betray him and turn against him and walk in a way that is contrary to him. And so, you know, we, we say these things to just point out the fact that we wrestle every single day with faithfulness and with the effects of unfaithfulness and often the effects of others' unfaithfulness towards us. But listen... God is calling us as a church, as a people, He is calling us as a community to be faithful, 
to be faithful to him in everything that he has spoken, to be faithful to what he exalts, to be faithful to what he said is good and right and true. He's calling us to that. He is commissioning us to that. He's commanding us to biblical fidelity this morning. And we're going to see that as we dig into this passage right here in 2 Timothy. And this morning as we look at this passage, really our our message is called uh, the foundation of faithfulness. We're going to catch a glimpse and really look deep at what the foundation of faithfulness is. You know, do we just become faithful all of a sudden? One day do we just, you know, walk around a corner and God dumps a big bucket of faithfulness on us and we're all of a sudden faithful and holy and sanctified and all of those things. Is that how it works? Good, I heard one no at least. Okay, hopefully the rest of you would say no by the end of the message. But no, it doesn't. Okay, it's not like that. Ultimately, faithfulness is submitting ourselves to God's truth. Faithfulness doesn't just spring up out of nowhere. It's built on the foundational truths of God's word. Faithfulness is living in light of God's truth. It is the application of God's truth in our daily lives. We could say it this way. Faithfulness is truth that is known, applied, and lived out daily. And so really, we're going to unpack this theme of faithfulness, and we are going to see this morning the foundation for our faithfulness and some of the pitfalls to faithfulness along the way. And so this morning, we're going to start into our passage here in 2 Timothy, and we're going to start in at verse 15 is where we're going to draw our first point from, but let me just read the passage for us right now. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 14 and reading right down to verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes this, uh, first to Timothy and then also to us, us, and he says this right here in verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." This morning, I'm praying that the Lord would take these truths that we have just read, that he would help us to understand the depth of their meaning, that he would press them deep into our hearts. Oh, Lord, would you let it be so this morning? And as I just mentioned a moment ago, we're going to start in verse 15, first of all. So verse 15, if you're with me, tracking with me in verse 15, we're going to draw our first point from there. We're not going to skip verse 14, but we're going to come back to it in a few minutes, okay? Because verse 14 really ties in with the rest of the passage very well. And so we'll start with verse 15, since it is a very foundational verse. Verse 15, do your best, Paul says to Timothy. Application for us there, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so the first thing that we need to see this morning is a faithful worker has a God-given responsibility, a God-given responsibility to diligently study, understand, apply, and communicate God's word with clarity. Let's bring the first point up on the screen. There it is. So a faithful worker has a God-given responsibility, responsibility, be great if I could say that word, okay, to diligently study and understand and apply and communicate God's word with clarity. Do you see that in the text? It's right there in verse 15. He says to Timothy, do your best to, to present yourself. Work hard, he says, to present yourself before God as one approved. This is important for us here this morning. As we hold up the word of God, as we take the word of God, we need to think just for a moment right now, first of all, how precious is it that you have a copy of God's word in your own hand? You know, this isn't just any book that any author wrote. This isn't, you know, just a bestseller and, you know, one that's easily come by. This is the very word of God that has come down from the living God who spoke everything into being. The only one 
who is in ultimate control over our eternity, the only one who can save us. This is his book. How awesome is that? As we think about that for a moment, this is a book that is to be held high. This is a book that is to be respected. This is a book that we base our lives upon. It is the foundation of our faith, and it's worthy of being diligently studied, understood, applied to our daily lives, and then communicated to others with clarity. And so let's just take a second and kind of step back understanding that right now and just talk for a second of what it really means to properly understand what the Word of God is. You know, it's really essential. If we're going to understand what the Bible says, we need to first understand what the Bible is, don't we? Okay, we need to understand what the Bible is. It's God's Word. We've just said that. And we'll understand that the Bible is really, it's not just one book, okay, but it's made up of how many books? 66 books, okay? So 66 individual books coming together to form one theme. Now, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. That is going back about 3,000 years ago now, okay, on three different continents by many different authors, but ultimately has one author who is God Almighty. Now, the Bible, you would think, you would think that it would have many different messages kind of all over the place. And yes, the Bible does speak to many different themes, but ultimately the Word of God has one overarching message. From beginning to end, the Word of God has one overarching message, and we've got to get this if we're going to understand the Word of God and understand it correctly. It has one overarching message, and it's this. God is redeeming his people, God is establishing his kingdom, and God is exalting his name, and he is doing all of these things through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that is what God is doing in the Bible from beginning to end. Okay, he is, he is redeeming his people, he is establishing his kingdom, he is exalting his name, and he's doing all of this through Christ, his only begotten son. I love how Brian Chappell puts this. He says it this way. He says, the Bible declares its main message right at the dawn of human history. After God made all things good, everything went, went bad as a consequence of the evil that entered the world through human sin. In order for everything to be made right again, God designed a plan to rescue humanity and the broken world from sin's corruption. Do we understand that? That's the overarching theme of the Bible. If we look at the Bible and we say, what is the Bible ultimately about? At the center of the Bible is one figure that towers above every other figure, towers above all of the great heroes of the Old Testament. There is one person, and he is the Son of God. He is God come in the flesh, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the center of the Bible, the focal point of, of God's redemptive work in this world. Ultimately, if you were to ask someone or they were to say, what's the theme of the Bible? You could pull out the old Sunday school answer. You could say, Jesus, right? And you would be right, absolutely, because Jesus is the center of the Bible, and we've got to get that. We've got to understand that. Now, if we're going to understand the Bible, though, we also need to understand what we have in our hands with the Bible. We need to understand that God is doing different things and different things are happening at different points in the Bible, though all of the Old Testament points forward to Christ and all of the New Testament either points back to the cross or forward to the second coming, God is at work doing different things in different portions of the Bible. And so here's a few things that are gonna come up on the screen right now that I think are going to help us a little bit to understand the Bible. If we want to divide God's word correctly, if we want to handle it precisely, if we want to know what we have, we need to understand these four things at least, okay? Four things that are going to help us with this. First of all, we need to understand that the Bible begins with God's creation, okay? Do we understand that? Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay, and everything that was in it, okay, God's creation, and at the beginning, God created all the things of this world, all the things of this universe, and the pinnacle of his creation was humanity. He made man and woman in his image, he made them to be like him, not the same as him, but like him in his image, okay, and God looked down, and he didn't just say that everything was, you know, pretty good. God looked down and everything was very good, he said. Very good. God created all things very good. But then we need to understand that shortly after creation, 
That creation didn't stay in the state of sinless perfection or innocence. Creation fell because of man's sin. There was what we know as the fall. Adam and Eve chose to serve sin rather than to serve God. They were tempted. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 3, they were tempted by the devil and they chose sin. And sin came into the world and sin affects everything. In fact, Romans tells us that the entire creation is subject to futility because of sin and that the entire creation is groaning out. Now, we see the effects of sin in the world around us every single day, don't we? We see the effects of sin on our own hearts every single day. We live in a post-fall world. We don't live in a world of innocence anymore. We don't live in a world of sinless perfection. We live in a world that is fallen, that is broken. We feel that brokenness in our own lives, don't we? Yes, we do. But listen, we also live in a world that is being redeemed, okay? And we need to understand that we have creation, we have the fall, and then immediately after Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, God began to work out his awesome and glorious plan of redemption. And it wasn't just like God cooked up a plan on the spot, was like, oh no, what did they do? I can't believe they blew it. I thought they were going to be good on this one. And, uh, and then came up with some plan. It's not like that. God had his plan of redemption, his plan made in eternity past, and he began to put into work his plan to redeem and to restore mankind. And the plan of redemption is all focused around who? Who is it focused around? Jesus Christ. There we go. That's right. Okay, it's around Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. But everything, everything after the fall in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the redemption of Christ where he laid down his life on the cross for sinners such as us. We've got to understand this. And then we live in this period right now of redemptive history. We live right now in a fallen world, but in a world that is being redeemed. But you know, there's another day coming. There's another day coming, and this is what we refer to as the new creation. Okay, there's a day coming when Christ will return, and he will restore what is broken, the ultimate restoration, the ultimate redemption, and he will bring about new creation where there will be no more tears, there will be no more sin, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more weeping, and he will be on the throne. What an awesome day that will be. But listen, we're not in that day today, are we? No. And as we read the scripture, there are promises that apply to that day that don't fully apply right now. And so we need to be careful. We need to understand these things. Listen, if you started to read the Old Testament and you didn't understand, you know, the, the period of creation, you could start to read some really weird things into, into the Old Testament in different places. If you didn't understand um, that we had fallen and if you didn't understand how to divide the word of God properly or that we're being redeemed, then you would really struggle with the Old Testament in different places. And you would struggle with certain promises in the New Testament, but this is important for us to keep in mind this morning. So hopefully you have that sketched down somewhere because we're going to move on and we're going to move back into really what this text says. But this text right here, right in front of us, it tells us very clearly that we as believers in Christ are to do our best to present ourselves to God as one who is approved as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, but rightly handles the word of God. Let me just break down these phrases for you. Let me just share this with you a little bit. We need to remember what's on the screen right now, but notice these words right at the beginning of verse 15. Do your best, Paul says to Timothy. Some of your translations might say study. Uh, some of your translations might say work hard, okay? All of those are good translations. Really what it is saying right here is be diligent, Okay, be diligent with the word, Paul says to Timothy. Hey, Timothy, be diligent with the word of God. Work hard with the word of God. Now, Timothy is a young pastor, and there's a great application right here for pastors and those who teach God's word, but there's also an application for each one of us as believers, isn't there? Small group leaders, work hard with God's word. Those who would profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, we must study God's word. It, listen, it's hard work to study God's word. You're like, well, you just read a book. It can't be that hard. <laughs> That's not it, okay? Yes, studying God's word is hard mental work, okay? That's part of it. But the biggest, hardest part of studying God's word is the hard application. You know, the hardest thing about any sermon is actually getting underneath the truth that you read. And God is so faithful. I remember so often 
where God has convicted me so deeply on the things that I was going to be preaching on on that Sunday that unless he allowed me the grace to get under them, I wasn't going to be able to say the things that I knew that text was saying. That's the hardest part. Man, there's some weeks where you're just like, I don't want to have to stand up there and say this because I'm not sure my life is fully yielded to this right now. And that's when you just need to get down on your knees and on your face and you need to pray to the Lord. Lord, would you help me to submit and surrender to you because this word is clear, it's accurate, and it's telling me what I need in my life at this moment. Listen, the hardest work is submitting to God's word. That is the hard work of the word. But I want you to notice what it says. Right after this, it says, do your best to present your God as one who is approved. Notice that word, approved. Paul's got kind of an illustration flowing through this passage. It, you know, it doesn't come out right away. It comes out at the end of the passage. Um, it's a picture of a firm foundation. And a firm foundation you can always trust is built by a master builder, by somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, and so right here in this phrase, he says, you know, work hard. It's kind of employing the idea of somebody who works in a trade and is diligent at the trade. And then right down here, he says, just after that, he says, Present yourself as one who is approved. Now, this word approved is the word adokimos in the Greek. Okay, dokimos. And to be dokimos means to be approved. It means to be acceptable. It means to be right. It means to be trustworthy. But it's really a, a building word. It's a construction word. It is the word that they would use most often when they would cut uh, blocks, okay, stone blocks out of a quarry, and they would transport those blocks to the building site. They would bring them, and the master builder would be there, and he would go through the blocks, believe it or not, one by one, the boss going through the blocks one by one, and he was sorting out what was dokimos versus adokimos, what was approved and what was unapproved. And so as he would go through the blocks, he would look at the block and make sure there was no flaw, and he would stack it over here, and it would be dokimos, it would be good. Or he would take another block, and he would see a flaw in it of some sort, maybe a crack or a weak spot, and he would scribe on that block an A, which meant adokimos, no good, and he would throw it off to the side, and it would be cast off, and it would be no good. And so what is being said here is, don't be adokimos, don't be lazy with the word, don't be adokimos, but be dokimos, be approved, present yourself to God as one who rightly handles the word of truth. Notice you'll say that, you'll see right in here in this text that it says, a worker a worker um, who presents themselves to God, okay? The worker is a picture right here of a manual laborer, a tradesperson, a builder who does not need to be ashamed. They don't cut corners, okay? They don't go for like quick fixes like, oh, wow, you've got a crack in the foundation. Well, let's just put some duct tape on that and uh, drywall over it and we'll be good, okay? Not like that. There's no cutting corners here, okay? No need to be ashamed. But then notice this phrase but rightly handling the word of truth. This little phrase really means um, that you have right conduct in how you're handling the word of truth, that you really, literally, it means to cut the word straight. To cut the word straight is, is what's being said right here. Cut it straight. And we think of, you know, when we think of cutting straight, we think of maybe dissecting something, we think of a cutting a stone, or maybe we think of a surgeon, Okay. How many of us would like to go to a surgeon who doesn't know how to cut straight? No, okay. How about a surgeon who's like, yeah, apparently he's really good. He doesn't know the difference between a heart and a spleen, but um, I, I don't know. And he can't cut straight. You're like, no, nah, I'll pass. I'll go to someone else, right? We wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go to a surgeon who can't cut straight. Likewise, as believers in Christ, we are to cut straight the word of God. We are to be straightforward with it. We are to be honest with it. We're not to cut corners. We're not to be crooked and twisted with it. We are to be straightforward in how we deal with it, how we apply it to our own lives, how we communicate it to others. In fact, the word that's used here uh, for, to communicate this is the word that we get our word orthodoxy from. We've all heard the word orthodoxy before, and the word orthodox is really, it's a belief that aligns rightly with Scripture. It is cut straight with Scripture. And so Paul says to Timothy here, be orthodox in the way that you handle the Word of God. Cut it straight for the people. Don't mix it up. Don't, you know, don't twist it in any way. In other words, we are to handle the Word of God rightly. But listen, 
We can handle the Word of God wrongly, can't we? We can misuse the Word of God, and we see, unfortunately, a fair bit of that today in different places. And if you tune in to maybe Christian radio, quote Christian radio, or quote Christian broadcasting television, there's a lot of things that pass or are called Christian that really aren't Christian at all. They're not cut straight from Scripture. They're not in line with Scripture. And you know this, I'm sure you're aware of this, but when you listen to Christian radio or whenever you, you, know, you listen to even a sermon or you put on a Christian broadcasting of any sort, you need to be very discerning with what you hear and what you take in. Do we understand that? Amen. I got a lot of blank stares like, no, I didn't know that. They're Christian. It's like, wow, deer in the headlights, uh-oh. Um, but no, we need to be discerning with this. We need to analyze what is being said. We need to look at it. The discernment has to land on us. In fact, in Acts 17 there's a group of people. They're called the Bereans. And uh, Paul, he went to Thessalonica and he preached the word there. And they were like, wow, that's amazing. Okay, I believe you. And they believed. And then he comes to Berea and he preaches the word. And it says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. We need to be like the Bereans. We hear something, you're like, I'm not just going to take your word on it. I'm going to search it out in scripture. That's why whenever I'm preaching a message and I reference a verse and it doesn't come up on the screen, I love to hear the pages turning, that somebody goes and looks it up. They're like, I, I want to see if that's really actually accurate, right? That's a wonderful thing. That is discernment. So we need to be discerning when we listen to the Word of God. Why? Because you can handle the Word of God wrongly, and this happens a lot today, and it is very destructive to those who hear it. Well, here's a few ways that we can handle the Word of God wrongly, and we see this happening today. Coming up on the screen, the first one, and I think we've all done this at some one point or another, we can un undermine the Word of God. We can undermine it. We can say, well, I know the Bible says, but don't put up your hand if you've done that, but I think we've done that, haven't we? We can say, I know, I know the Bible says that we are to love our neighbor. I know that the Bible says that we are to love God above everything else, but that's almost impossible. And so, so it really can't be that big of a deal. You really can't be that serious about it. What are we doing right there? We are undermining the word of God. We are, we are giving to God or we're saying for God how seriously he takes things. And in fact, it's contrary to what he has said in his word. In fact, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and greatest commandment. Loving your neighbor is the second right? We can undermine the Word of God. That happens often today. And we can also do this by coming up with sophisticated arguments against why we need to apply a certain set of Scripture or why a certain verse uh, doesn't apply to us. And maybe we've done that before. Well, I know God says, but da 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 and we just go on and on. So anytime that you hear, I know God says, but, I'm just going to say that's a great spot for a red flag, okay? Just to be like, I know God says, but... That shouldn't be in our vocabulary, okay? There should be, I know God says, but it should be, I know God says, therefore I will submit to what he says. That should be in our vocabulary. So we can undermine the word of God. Another thing that we can do is we can uh, proof text the word of God. So proof texting, we can use an unclear or an obscure verse to support our own ideas and our own notions. And so this is often done by certain movements within Christianity, um, the for example, the Word of Faith movement or the Prosperity movement does this often. They will proof text, and you'll be like, it came from the Bible. It's got to be good. Well, what they'll do is they'll take a verse, they'll rip it out of its context, or they will take a verse that actually maybe applies to the new creation, and they will say, no, it applies right now. We should have all of that now, and therefore you should have all of these blessings in your life and not recognize that we are still in the period of redemption. Okay, so we need to be careful about proof texting. I remember I had a mentor in Bible college who always used to tell me, often he would say this. I think I must have had a habit of proof texting back then, um, or he just liked to say it. He would always say to me, he would say, a text out of context is a proof text. And he would say it over and over again. A text out of context is a proof text. And I was like, well, yeah, it proves what I'm trying to say. And he's like, no, 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 it does. it's out of context. It's no good. You got to get one that's in its proper context. And he pounded that into my life. And I think from that, I learned to go back and check the context, the surrounding passage on a verse, okay? But we can also do this. We can also misapply God's word. We can misapply God's word. Now, this is going back a number of years now. Um, I'm not sure how many, and I, I, me, when I thought of this, I realized I'm getting old, 
okay? Um, but there's a, a very small prayer in the Old Testament, okay? There's a very small prayer that um, someone wrote a very small book about that gained a very large following and made them probably a whole lot of money. I don't know for sure. Okay, but a very small prayer from the Old Testament made a very small book, gained a very large following. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. That very small prayer, it was called the prayer of Jabez. You've probably heard of it. You've probably already assumed that. And the interesting thing about that prayer is it's a prayer that somebody prayed and the Lord honored it. But what this author did is they took that prayer to be a pattern for all of us and saying, basically, if we just pray this prayer, then God will do these things in our lives too, out of context, miss the point. It's a misapplication, okay? You're misapplying what it is saying. It's not being faithful to the Word of God. Another thing, though, that we can do is we can over-spiritualize God's Word sometimes. Like, well, the Bible's about spiritual things. Yes, but we can over-spiritualize it sometimes. And we can do this, and we end up missing the original meaning of the passage. Okay, we can miss the point that the Bible is actually communicating. We can so spiritualize some things that, that we actually miss the mark on what it is saying to us for our own lives right now. We need to be careful with these things. We need to be careful to cut the Word of God straight, to handle it rightly, to be diligent with it as a worker, a faithful worker is faithful with their trade. We need to be faithful with the Word of God. Parents in the room, I want you to think about this. In your own house, if you love your kids and you want them to know the Lord and you want them to handle the Word of God rightly, where are they going to learn that from? They're going to learn it from you. They're going to learn it from how you handle the Word of God in your home. And so cut the word of God straight for them. Share it with them, with truth and with love. But, but share it with them in a way that is accurate to what it says and the, not promoting just of your own ideas and your own notions. But I want to do this right now. I want to head back to verse 14 because there's more here than just a firm foundation based on what we learn from Scripture. There's more in this text that it has to tell us. Scripture is our foundation for faithfulness, okay? It's, it's the foundation that God has given us. But I want you to notice this in verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says to them, he says, remind them of these things and charge them. That's a serious word. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. I just want to pause here for a second before we move on to the later verses. I just want to allow a moment here for the word of God to kind of even bear some weight on us in this moment. Paul says, remind them of these things. He says, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Sometimes we can, as Christians... We can quarrel about words, can't we? We can quarrel about theological words. Well, I'm of this camp, or I'm of this camp, or I'm of this belief, or I believe this means this, and I believe this means that. And sometimes, sometimes these are important. There are important gospel arguments to be made, but sometimes we can go, get so wrapped up in quarreling about words and fighting about words that we can actually push others away, can't we? One example that I think of with this is that in some camps today, it's totally unpopular to say that somebody accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I remember hearing this and was kind of like, I'm not sure why that's unacceptable, why we can't say that anymore. I remember someone saying, you don't accept Jesus, he accepts you. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's tr true. But at the same time, the Word of God says in, in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so if you can explain to me the difference between accept and received and how it is not acceptable to say accepted Christ, but it is acceptable to say received Christ, if you can explain that from the Bible, then maybe I can get with it. But if you can't, then maybe you should drop it. Because there's really not much of a difference between accept and received, as far as I can see. When I get a gift at Christmas, I receive it and I accept it all at the same time. It's both and, right? The gift doesn't accept me in that way. Really, is there a real difference here? No, I don't think so. So why do we get worked up about these things? Well, to be honest, it's not good. It's not good. Look at what it says in the Word right here, verse 14. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God. 
not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Arguments like this get tiring after a while, don't they? Notice what it says here in verse 16. Verse 14, right down to verse 16. Verse 15, we've already dealt with the faithfulness of God's word. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. That's pretty gross. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Listen, here's the second thing that we need to see this morning. A faithful worker has a God-given responsibility to carefully guard against engaging in pointless conversation. So a faithful worker, somebody who wants to be faithful to honor Jesus Christ as holy in their heart and life, has a responsibility, a God-given responsibility to guard themselves against engaging in pointless conversation, in arguments about words, in irreverent babble, in things that are not going to be profitable for anyone who hears them. This might sound like a small thing to you, but honestly, I really think that it's a big thing for us today. I really think that this is something that we as a church and that um, our generation of Christians really, really struggle with in a lot of ways. Uh, struggles may be the wrong word, are unfaithful in. That's a better way to say it. I don't think we struggle with it. I think we just give into it. We're unfaithful with this sometimes. We quarrel. We quarrel about words. We give ourselves to irreverent babble. We, we just dive into these things. Probably one of the biggest areas that we see this happening today is on social media. Now, I'm not a social media hater, but I'm not a social media lover either. I, I don't hate social media. I don't love social media. Social media has its uses, its good uses. They might be few, but it does have some, okay? But it also has a lot of bad uses as well. A lot of the time, people take to social media with a lot more fury and fire than they would in a personal conversation. Somebody will jump on social media and they'll jump on some uh, theological bandwagon and boom, boom, boom on the keys and they will say things a lot more harshly, forcefully, with no care of who's going to hear it than they ever would say it to a person's face in real life. It's not right. That is not right. Believe it or not, Jesus Christ says that we will be held accountable for every word from our mouths. Every word. Every word from our mouths. I'm just going to go out on a limb here, too, and that if he was with us today, he would say, and keystroke. I don't want to add words to the Bible, but I think the application is there. We are held accountable for the words that we type to other people on social media. And here's the thing that we miss so often, church. When we are in that great big theological discussion online before the watching world, there are many people watching that that are either unbelievers who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior or have just come to Christ and are baby believers, and they see that kind of infighting and that kind of arguing, and they say, if, if this is what Christianity is, I don't want it. And they walk away. Now tell me, how is that honoring to Christ? Why is it that every person, every Christian on social media with a theological bent needs to be the next Martin Luther? I'm just, okay, I've got my hammer and Facebook is going to be the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral and I'm going to nail it up. I got 95 of these things and we're going to go at them all. Why is that? It's pride. It's arrogance. It's a lack of humility. It's ungodliness. Now, there are arguments to be made, and there are arguments to be had, and there are places to make them, and there are places to have them. And I'm just going to say flat out this morning that social media as an open spectrum is not the place to have them. Why not write the person a, a private message, or better yet, pick up the phone, or better yet, sit down over coffee and say, you know what, brother or sister, I love you, the Lord loves you, but I'm concerned about some of the things that you're saying, and I want to show you from Scripture how these things are not so and I want to lead you in the truth. Wouldn't that be a different conversation? Wouldn't that be awesome? And maybe if you're at a public place, you're at a Tim Hortons or whatever, the person next to you doesn't even know Christ, and they hear you talking about the gospel, and they hear you talking in such a winsome way that they're like, man, I want to learn more about that person's faith. Wouldn't that be a different outcome than just blasting people on social media? Listen, I don't think that this is a 
an off connection. I don't think this is distant from what this text is saying to us. Notice what it says. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. For a moment there, I was going to put a picture of gangrene up on the screen this morning, and then I realized that's a really bad idea because the goal is not um, to make you sick and lose your breakfast. The goal is actually here, as we talk about this, to make us sick over our own sin so that we'll repent of it, so that we'll turn from it, and so that we will honor Christ the Lord as holy in all of our conversation, whether it's public, whether it's verbally, or whether it's even on social media. Listen, church, I want you to hear the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 and verses 6. Just listen to these words. I just want to ask you this question. How can what I just described about the way that we act sometimes on social media, how can that fit with these verses? Listen to these verses. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Listen, if you agree with those words, if you agree with this text, then I want to ask you to guard your conversation wherever it is. You've heard, you know that you will be accountable for every word, that you will be accountable for every keystroke, that you are accountable for the things that you say in this life before Christ. Listen, an area with this text that's really, the Lord's really been pressing into my heart personally is actually the area of, you know, joking with, with other people and the area of, you know, making a joke at someone else's expense, I guess it is, is probably a good way to say it. Not, you know, not coarse joking, not crude joking. Um, the Lord worked that out in my life a, a long time ago, and it's rarely a struggle anymore every once in a while, but for the most part, um, making a joke at someone else's expense is something that I definitely struggle with and stumble in. And last year in the, uh, just in the fall, a brother came to me at a conference and uh, just kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, Brett, what, what you said there, I know it was a joke and meant to be a joke, but that, that really hurt me pretty deeply. And I, I was kind of shocked by that. I was shocked by the fact that he would pull me aside in this way. And now I'm incredibly thankful and indebted to this brother that he would love me enough to even gently and lovingly call me out on something that has no place in the Christian community. And he pulled me aside and he said, you know, I'd be glad to sit down with you and explain to you why that actually hurts so much. And he did do that. He sat down and he explained it to me. And the Lord really used that conversation to not only convict me, but I really believe that he's using it to change me today. And I'm learning. I'm not, I'm not perfect in this area at all. Don't hear me wrong. I'm, I'm growing, and sometimes it's, some days it's painfully slow. But learning that a joke at someone else's expense is never a joke. A joke at someone else's expense is always cruel on the best of days. It's always unrighteous, unfitting. But at worst, it could actually be slanderous against the person, and it could even be an outright sin against Jesus Christ and against his church. Church, we've got to guard our conversation. We've got to be careful about the things that we say. You know, I'm often reminded with my own children that I don't always know exactly who's listening or what they're going to pick up, but, they are, but somebody else is always listening, overhearing what we are saying. And even if they're not, the Lord's always hearing and the Lord always knows. I want you to notice this in the passage though. There's two people listed right here in this text. Um, two guys, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Um, seems that Hymenaeus is also mentioned in 1 Timothy and he's uh, Hymenaeus with um, Alexander then, I believe. It starts with an A anyway. Um, but here it's Hymenaeus and Philetus and these two people were somehow going about teaching uh, a false doctrine. They were saying that the resurrection had already happened, not Christ's resurrection. They were saying that uh, the resurrection of all the saints, that Christ had already returned, that he had already, already come back and raised all of the dead. And, and this was causing a lot of chaos in the believers' lives. And I want you to notice something here. Hymenaeus and Philetus, their, their talk, their unprofitable talk, their false teaching, uh, this false teaching, it spreads like gangrene from one person to the next, from one area of the body to another. 
And it caused all kinds of problems within the church. We don't know a ton about this false teaching particularly. Uh, Some commentators believe that they may have been teaching a form of Gnosticism at that time, but we're not 100% positive. But the result is sure. It was destructive to the church. It was harmful to the body of Christ. It was not helpful to anybody, but it actually hurt believers. And it was causing some people to turn away from the Lord. Listen, one commentator said it this way when he was describing this passage. He said, he said this, Today, in the age of tolerance and relativism, Paul shouts in our ears, There is a true path and there is a false path. There is a mark you can hit and there is a mark you can miss. There is truth that can, be, that can nourish and there is falsehood that kills. That's our reality today. There's a true path and there's a false path. There's a right path and a wicked path. And we've got to choose as believers, if we are going to call ourselves, if we're going to say that we belong to Jesus Christ, we have to choose which path are we going to walk down. Are we going to choose daily to walk the path of life, the right path, by the grace of Jesus Christ? Or are we going to choose to pursue our own path, which is the path that leads to destruction? Which path? As you think about this today, as you think about the application of this part of the message, even think right now, which path are you on? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you've trusted Him as Lord and Savior, every sin, even present sin, any sin that you commit today in any way, He will forgive. He will wash it clean. He will wash your slate whiter than snow, and that is an awesome reality. And He will set your feet firmly on the right path, and He will lead you in it because He is gracious And he is a good shepherd. But if you don't know him as Savior, then you're on the wrong path today. But you can today. You can repent. You can turn from your sin. You can turn to Jesus Christ. You can receive his grace, his forgiveness, and you can be set on the right path, washed clean, forgiven completely, 100%, and you can know that you are in him today. And so question that. What path are you on today? But listen, as we talk about that, I want to point out one more thing right here in the text for us. Verse 19 right at the end of our text. I want you to notice what it says. It says this, but God's firm foundation stands. Praise God. Let me just read that again. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Here's the last thing that we need to see this morning. We'll close with this. A faithful worker has a God-given responsibility to remember our foundation, who is Jesus Christ, and then to live accordingly. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a God-given responsibility to remember Jesus Christ continually, every single day, every moment of every day, to make him your everything in your life and to live your life accordingly to what he has commanded. Listen, church, Jesus Christ is our firm foundation. He is the cornerstone and the capstone of the church. He is the rock that we build our lives upon. And listen, if you build your life on the shifting sand of this world, if you build your life on the desire for pleasure, on worldly spirituality, on world religion, if you build your life on attempting to do good works, that is nothing more than a foundation made of sand. And it will crumble on the final day. But if you build your life on Jesus Christ, you've built your life upon the rock, on the firm foundation, on the solid rock of God's grace. And even though the storms of life will press against you and push against you, that rock will never move. He will remain faithful in everything. And so today, church, where's your life built? Is it built on the rock of Jesus Christ? Or is it built on the rock of your own, or on the shifting sands of your own self-righteousness, your own attempts? Listen. This is a message that our world doesn't want to hear today. Our world today is deeply offended by a message that I might need anybody else to save me other than myself. That's deeply offensive to our world today. The idea that we, you know, if if, if someone says, listen, you can't save yourself, that is deeply, deeply offensive to our world today, but it's true. It is true, and it's a message that our world needs to hear. We cannot save ourselves. Humanity left to themselves is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Humanity only grows as it grows in the grace of God, and we only change, and we are only saved when we stand on the rock of God, which is Jesus Christ, the firm foundation. 
And so this is an unpopular message, but it's a message that is deeply, deeply true. The church is built on the rock of God's firm foundation, which is Jesus Christ. We have the truth, what that is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth, he said, would set us free, and praise God, we have been set free through Jesus Christ. And therefore, church, if all of that is true, then do not live as though you are still enslaved to your former sins. Why? Because Jesus Christ has purchased your freedom. He has set you free, and he has called you to walk in that freedom. He has called you to live in the light of holiness. He has called you to live accordingly and surrender and submit your life to him. And with that in mind, church, walk in the freedom that he gives you. Live for God instead of for yourself. Put off the old habits of the flesh and live by the power of the Spirit of God and walk in the freedom of the Spirit of God. Resist sin and resist the devil, trusting that Jesus Christ has won the battle, that he has won the victory, that he has triumphed over the grave, that he has triumphed over sin, hell, and the devil, and everything that is wicked in this world, and that he is coming again to redeem and to restore and to bring about his new creation, and that will be a great and glorious and awesome day. Live in that light, church. Walk in that light. Submit yourself to Jesus Christ. And never live a day without remembering the price that he paid for you with his own precious blood on the cross when he poured it out so that your sin and my sin could be forgiven. Church, I invite you right now just to bow your head and pray. And after we have prayed, Ed, one of our elders here, is going to come up and lead us in a time of remembering Christ in a time of communion. Let's pray together and thank God for his goodness and his word. Heavenly Father, God, we joyfully, joyfully bow in your presence right now, God, just to give you the thanks and the praise that your word would be given to us, that we can hold the word of God right here in our hands today. God, this is a privilege that many around the world even today do not have, but God, you have blessed us so richly with your word. God, would you help us to be diligent with it, Lord, to be faithful with it? God, would you help us Lord, as we seek to study it, as we seek to share it with others, Lord, would we not neglect it, God? Lord, would you lead us in these things? God, would you draw us every single day? Would you draw us back to your firm foundation, which is your son, Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood at the cross and then rose again for our salvation? Lord, would you help us to plant our feet on the rock and to trust him with everything that we have? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.